Welcome to the San Diego Psychological Association's podcast, Diving Into Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Carcel. This podcast has been developed with the intent to inform and educate the general public and providers and should not be relied upon for any other purpose. The content, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and not those of the San Diego Psychological Association. Please be advised this episode contains profanity and explicit language. We're excited to be talking about the topic of understanding trauma in the five bucket rules. I'd like to welcome our special guest and expert, Dr. Shiva Guide. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'd like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Shiva Guide. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say, I am beyond excited to talk to you. It's very rare that I get the opportunity to not only talk to a clinician who is an expert in the field, but also has a real personal story to share. Your experience in trauma, just based on your educational background, is profound. You have... um, done tremendous research and work here in the field of trauma and PTSD. Um, you also specialize in mood disorders, anxiety disorders. You have an impressive background. But I think one of the things that was so interesting to me was when I read your book and I got a chance to see your story, specifically being at the massacre in Las Vegas on October 1st of 2017. This is where, for those who aren't familiar, I don't know who wouldn't be familiar with this, but a gunman murdered 58 people and wounded 489 others, and you were physically there. I can't imagine what that was like. Um, You write about this in your book, Route 91, Healing from Mass Violence and Trauma. Um, You've been honored by the city of San Diego, and you've been given a National Hero Award by the American Red Cross. Um, Your work on this, sharing your book to others... It's quite phenomenal. And if you don't mind, I'd like to start with your story. Any parts that you'd like to share with us? Because it's it's quite impressive what you've done and healing from this tragedy. Thank you so much, Michelle. And thank you for that very generous introduction. I appreciate that. I am indeed very grateful to be here to speak on this because not everybody was so fortunate. And, you know, aside from that event, there are certainly just too many people who have passed in the past couple of years from COVID um, and other types of events. So I guess, you know, just to summarize, and again, you read the story, so there are a lot more details in the book, and I won't really um, belabor all of that, but I wanted to put enough in the book just to let people know, okay, this was one experience, and here's a little bit of what it was like, um, so that then I'd have some credibility moving forward and trying to teach people about how to recover. But I do also want to point out that the statistics, the numbers, I don't believe that they're totally accurate. Mm. You know, and I was also very surprised at sort of the limited coverage on this event. If you recall, it was, you know, a week, maybe a week and a half, two weeks, and then it was gone Mm -hmm. and nobody talked about it. It was off the news, which I, I thought was, you know, Strange. And unfortunately for many people, I think that felt extremely invalidating. But nonetheless, irrespective of all of that, um, it was a it was a terrifying night. And uh it was, you know, a very long night. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we had I mean, obviously we were at the festival all weekend, but then it was winding down to the literally the last hour. And, you know, from 10 o'clock on when the shooting started, it was just it was just running and hiding through the entire night. Wow. 
Um, and then once we were in the conference room it, for about five, six hours, um, you know, getting bomb threats, it was, it was terrifying. Um, and it was very chaotic and people were very confused and there was not a lot of information, but a lot of people trying to text everybody's phones, dying people trying to contact loved ones. So, um, it was definitely one of those life events that one never forgets. And, you know, I think I've mentioned many times that I was very grateful before this event. You know, I've just sort of been able to foster more and more gratitude as I've, I've gotten older, but that just events like this in general are really good reminders for all of us. You know, even if we don't have as much room to make post-traumatic growth because we were healthy going into the event, there's certainly, um, I think, no downside to having a reminder every now and then that you really have to grab onto life. And, you know, I never procrastinate about calling people I love and telling them that I love them or just doing my absolute best every day. You know, I don't want to live with regrets. I want to live in a way that, you know, if I know that I have five more minutes to live, then I can die happy because I've done and said everything that I need to. Wow. That's remarkable. Again, very few people have this type of background in their life where it is something so profound, so acute. You know, we talk about trauma uh, a lot of times. There's references to big T trauma big T being big traumatic events, things that are pretty substantial. And then we talk about little T trauma, you know, microaggressions or things that happen where they affect us and change our behavior, but may not be to the level of what we're talking about here with this, the massacre in Las Vegas. I'm so curious for you, how did you heal from this? What did you do after the event? And, and maybe sharing some of that might help listeners who have had big T trauma experiences as well. Absolutely. Um, and I'll, yeah, I can kind of give it to you in a nutshell. And I appreciate that question. You know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I'll self-disclose in um, my own mission to be truly authentic. This was not the first traumatic life event that I've been through and not the worst. Wow. <laughs> Which I, it says a lot, right? But I think what was different about this event was that I am a professional in the field and I have expertise in trauma. I almost, I almost think of this in a spiritual way. And there were many people that were a part of the group that came to me and said, you know, I think you were just this gift from God that just happened to be there so you could help us heal. Because I mean, what, is, what are the chances, you know, that I'm specialized in combat, non-combat, you know, and just trauma in general. Um, I felt like I was there for a reason um, other than enjoying country music and hanging out with my girlfriends, but maybe, maybe there was a bigger reason, you know? I mean, again, we, we carry beliefs that sort of serve us well. Um, at least hopefully we do. That's the goal. And I, I like to sort of think of that in a spiritual way, but I think what was so different about this trauma, Michelle, is that I, I you know, being a professional, I almost approached the healing process from a standpoint of curiosity, almost as though I was observing myself through this whole process. So, you know, in the weeks following the first couple of weeks, I didn't have any symptoms. And I thought, of course, I'm a doctor. I'm, I'm, like, I'm an expert in this. I'm not going to have any PTSD or any trauma symptoms. Well, I don't think I ever developed PTSD because 
I know what you need to do to not develop PTSD. It's no coincidence or accident why people will develop PTSD. We understand the mechanism very well now at this point, you know, which is different than a few years, you know, decades ago. Um, but I still had trauma symptoms. So, you know, after the two weeks when I had gone back to Vegas, um, which was a great exposure activity, I started, you know, I would have a panic attack in the middle of nowhere. Um, I would feel suddenly very like my heart racing or um, break down crying. Um, I was having lots and lots of intrusive images just of those like really key moments when I thought I would die. And there were probably a good five or six of them um, during the course of that night. And I would just, you know, I'd be like running my group or like driving on the highway. And I suddenly just see this image of blood and, or this image of like laying under the car or, you know, just these crazy things. And um, that happened actually through the first year, but it bothered me less and less. After about the third or fourth month, um, I didn't have quite so many. I didn't have any more massacre nightmares the thing that just really lingered was the hypervigilance when, and, or sensitivity, I should say, to loud noises, um, especially slamming and like anything that was gunshotty. Um, and then the lights, sensitivity to lights and, uh, and then those intrusive images. But, you know, every time something happened, Michelle, I was kind of like, oh, that was interesting. That sort of caught me off guard. Huh. So this is what my patients who've been in combat. This is, or through similar, you know, types of traumas. Um, although the truth is, and you know this, trauma is trauma is trauma is trauma. You know, we like to sort of think that, you know, I have a different kind of trauma. No, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, and if you've done any work in cognitive processing therapy, which is a really, really wonderful, like top notch, you know, cutting edge uh, trauma therapy, it is so clear that you can, I've had room, you know, rooms with like people with 20 different kinds of traumas and they all tell the exact same story. I'm not physically safe anywhere. I can't keep myself safe. People are going to hurt me. I don't trust anybody. I don't trust myself. I don't feel powerful. I have to do things to sort of strategize. So I feel a sense of control. I don't feel people are shit. I'm a piece of shit, right? Just kind of the summation of esteem. And then intimacy. I don't want people to get close to me. I don't like to be touched. I don't like people standing behind me. And so the story is all the same. And it's, you know, what you start to, I mean, anybody who really understands trauma and definitely all of my patients after they've encountered me, you know, and they've run through my therapy, they understand it's not about the traumatic event that happened. It's about the story that they've come away with and the way they've interpreted that traumatic event. And then that trauma story, that trauma narrative, it it carries forward and then it starts Mm -hmm. to dictate the behavioral changes like avoidance and isolation and, you know, alienation from other people. And then, you know, you have then the sleep problems and maybe acting out or, you know, trying to, to compensate in some way, drinking, right you know, other kinds of maladaptive behaviors. Right. So, you know, it was very, it was very, um, I mean, easy for me in a way, because even though I had some trauma symptoms, I knew exactly what to do to, I just kept doing exposure. Michelle, I probably went back to Vegas like 
14, 12, 14 times in that one year after and some to help stand up the group in Vegas. But, you know, I knew every time I went, it was going to get easier and easier. And the last few times I've gone, I didn't even think about the massacre, you know, and that's really what recovery is about. Um, I, you know, I, I think if there were one message to tell people about trauma, it's pretty simple. Do not avoid, do not avoid, do not avoid thinking about it. Do not avoid talking about it. Do not avoid feeling your feelings about it. Do not avoid situations, activities, people, places, anything triggering, move towards it, not away from it. Because we absolutely need to have those corrective learning experiences where we get a chance to go out into these these places and these spaces that maybe remind us of the lion, the saber-toothed mm-hmm. tiger, but they're not <laughs> the same thing as the lion or the saber-toothed tiger, right? Exactly. I, I want to um, clarify a few things. You actually have worked with veterans. You have a background in military response here. So you you were really uniquely uh, specialized, I should say, uh, to be there in that way. And I, I can appreciate what you're saying there. And there's a couple of things that I think might be really helpful because um, one of the things for for folks who are listening who have a trauma background or who have you know, symptoms of PTSD, this could be very unclear. And I understand it, right? We're talking clinician to clinician. So when you say the saber-toothed tiger, my automatic thought goes to, oh, yeah, we're talking about the autonomic system. We're talking about sympathetic response. We're talking about parasympathetic response. I think it might be really helpful, though, to, to clarify. And one thing that I love that you've done, and I, I hope uh, many more of us can, can adopt this, I'm certainly um, working on this as well, is simplifying this for clients and patients. And you've done this through your teaching of Trauma 411. So in your Trauma 411 videos and narrative, you talk about teaching the science, quote unquote. So teaching the science of trauma and PTSD to your patients, your clients, and people that you're working with, because that way it destigmatizes it and it normalizes it. And it's so important. I loved what you just said to do not avoid, do not avoid. We're so used to being afraid of things that make us afraid and that actually makes it worse. But in order to not avoid, I think it helps to explain why we avoid to begin with. And yeah, so I was wondering, can you discuss PTSD and trauma? And there is a distinction between the two, right? There's a difference. And a little bit about the autonomic nervous system, the response system, and how you work through that, You're, you had the tools. So you knew how to work through that and how others are working through that as well. Oh, that's that's a big question. It is. <laughs> I wish that I could transport my whiteboard here because it's, it's that's, I actually am kind of old school um, I, and I keep people active, get them on the whiteboard, but I do like map out the entire nervous system and you know, autonomic branch, parasympathetic, sympathetic branch, what's going on down to the chemicals, down to all the structures, because, and you know, some of them are like, oh, doc, gee, that's a lot of science. I'm like, well, you know, I like to nerd out, but really the takeaway, I don't need you to remember, you know, things like catecholamines and, right. <laughs> you know, all the different parts that are involved in the, in, in the neuroendocrine system. I just want you to take away that this is a, brain dis-ease 
problem. This is a physiological, neurochemical, neurophysiological, this is neuroanatomical even. This is a real medical issue. And I just, I, I feel like I say this at nauseam to my patients, the brain's an organ. It's the most important organ. It is the one that runs all of the other organs. And, and literally, you know, I, I say this a lot, secrets will make you sick. And, and secrets can actually kill you slowly or quickly, right? Because if you don't, if you don't kill yourself, which is the fast way, you will first start probably having some sleep problems, right? That's what we see with people who have chronic anxiety or depression. And then along with the sleep problems, you start to have cortisol dysregulation. That's correlated with adipose tissue depositing intra-abdominally. That's correlated with increased cancers, right? Also, sleep deprivation is correlated with cardiovascular problems. Like literally over a lifetime, sleeping less than four or five hours a night, you will die sooner. Your heart will give out sooner, right? We can't manage pain. We can't, we have more pain, more um, chronic pain, more migraines and headaches that are correlated with both anxiety and depression. Uh, your immune system tanks because of the cortisol dysregulation. Literally, it will kill you slowly if it doesn't kill you quickly. And so we just really can't afford to not teach this science um, because. I mean, let's face it, uh, you know, we're busy, Michelle, we're busy doctors, right? We're busy healthcare professionals, but somebody's got to take the time. I have patients, I'm the hugs doc, not even the drugs doc, but I have patients come in, they're not taking their meds. And so I have to be the one to sit down and explain, look, take it like birth control. What happens when you, you know, fuck with your birth control, you could get pregnant. Don't fuck with your brain chemistry like this. Take it every day at the same time and the way it's prescribed. And I explain to them how antidepressants and anxiolytics work and what they do to the brain. And I teach them, well, when you've been depressed for a long time, studies have shown in functional MRI scans, which is like mini scans for the brain, right? I break it down. They've shown that we have changes, neuroanatomical changes. We see the amygdala and the hippocampus. The hippocampus shrinks. Your hippocampus is responsible for thought process, you know, remembering, focusing, um, uh, and, you know, all the things that people complain about, like, oh, doc, I can't remember. I can't focus. I can't, you know, I just can't learn things. That while well, your hippocampus has been shrunken for probably a decade. <laughs> so I'm sure that's not helpful. Um, but yeah, in terms of um, the science that's really relevant to PTSD, and again, I love that you kind of distinguish between trauma and PTSD because it's it's a very unfortunate thing that PTSD has this gravity and this weight associated with it. People don't use it appropriately, you know, and people sometimes drop out the D completely, right? You have that PTS stuff. <laughs> um, but it's interesting um, I ask my patients all the time, you know, how do you define trauma? What is trauma? And I just let them answer. Some of them feel like trauma is the actual event. Some of them feel like it's all the symptoms that develop after. And that's when I can say, okay, so traumatic events, um, at least in the clinical sense, are events that are life-threatening to you or someone close to you. 
Um, and then I give them kind of all of the DSM criteria types of things that meet criteria. So somebody dying, you know, grandma dying is not really considered a traumatic event. That's kind of a natural part of life. But if you, you know, walked in and saw that grandma was killed by homicide, that's a traumatic event, right? Unexpected. There's an element of horror, of terror. Um, and so, but PTSD is not actually the only trauma diagnosis, right? And everybody thinks, oh, I've been through trauma. I have PTSD. First of all, 70 to 90% of people don't end up developing any trauma disorder. And I actually, and you, you probably have seen this as well, many I'd say even most of my patients who have childhood trauma don't have PTSD. They have chronic major depressive disorder or a, a more longstanding anxiety disorder because let's face it, you've learned to live with this for so long. Um, PTSD is just one of many different diagnoses that result from a traumatic event. Um, when Basically, what I start with is I just teach them about two main things. And also I do actually, even before that, I talk to them about the stress diathesis model, right? The stress vulnerability model, because often, you know, when, after I say, well, like 70 to 90% of people recover, you're in that very small percentage, then they get very upset. And why, why me? Why am I in the small percentage? What am I doing wrong? And it compounds on all of those core beliefs that are very maladaptive, that I'm a piece of shit, right? Um, and I try to explain to them, no, 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 it's not your fault, right? I mean, we have our genetics, we have our biology, which is then the genetics interacting with environment. We have our all the grownups around us, they taught us things or not, right? They may have taught us boundaries or not, um, and healthy coping strategies. And then you may have had childhood trauma. All of these things accumulate and start to you know, um, contribute to a worldview that you develop as children. Our brains aren't fully developed till mid twenties, but you know, all of these very sensitive years, we have these core beliefs about ourselves and the world just forming. And then you become an adult and you've got a set of like coping strategies. And maybe you learned to go drink and isolate when you're stressed out. And that probably is part of why you, and then also maybe you had emotionally constipated parents. And so you never talked about your feelings. And that is the very thing that was just the nail in the coffin to developing PTSD. So I'll kind of set the stage by de describing the stress vulnerability model, just explain to them, it's not just what happened this year right now. It's everything that came before it. We have to look at these things from a very multidimensional and comprehensive place. Um, and then I'll go into, okay, so here's the deal. You, um, you developed PTSD. Why did that happen? Well, here's why it happened. And I'll sort of, you know, I'll draw out on the whiteboard after explaining, of course, the fight, flight, freeze response. I'll draw out basically uh, what is classical conditioning, right? Where you have this unconditioned stimulus, which is the lion or the near-death experience. It's the trauma, the traumatic event, if we want to call it that, right? Um, and I, I make sure that they understand it has to be specific. So for example, for Route 91, the traumatic event was not Route 91. That was a concert. It was wonderful. It was a fantastic weekend, right? And it was also not Vegas. I mean, Vegas didn't kill people. It was shooters shooting bullets 
towards us. That was the lion because they could have also been hanging out with guns outside of the window and not nobody would have died, right? It was shooting bullets. It was bullets that were killing people. So we have to be very specific about this. But you have this unconditioned and which means unlearned, right? We don't need to learn that the lion can eat us or the prehistoric saber-toothed tiger. We're hardwired. All animals are hardwired for this. So we have this unconditioned, unlearned stimulus. And it will always lead to an unconditioned or unlearned response. We're hardwired as long, and the caveat is, as long as we perceive danger, which is adaptive, right? There were a few people at the concert just hanging out, beer, smoking, while the shooting, the bullets are coming at us. And I was thinking, boy, I bet they've been in combat. That's not adaptive because you can die that way, right? But as long as you perceive danger, then you're going to have this fight, flight, freeze response. And it's also something that I try to drive home to them that actually the most common response is freeze for all, always for all animals. But unfortunately, that is the least valued response. We really want to say we're fighters, right? But like, oh no, I didn't flee. I didn't freeze. And then if they did, then they're beating themselves up. And then that's contributing to more of this worldview, like I'm a piece of shit. So it's not helpful. And I also let them know they don't get to choose the response. Their amygdala is going to choose for them. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, unfortunately, if you have a history of child abuse, molestation, you may be sort of primed to freeze at for any subsequent traumas. So, you know, that's the first thing. And I always explain to them, look, this stuff is hardwired. It's never going to go away. We don't want it to go away. But then what happens is, is that, you know, the hippocampus that's like taking notes and it's like the scribe, it's like writing away like Vegas, mm-hmm. nighttime, 10 o'clock Sunday, cowboy boots, Jason Aldean, people screaming, ambulances, helicopters, right? Warms, you know, perfect weather. It's putting all <laughs> these facts and it's just like, it's just like typing up all these facts, right? Right. And and that's part of what the brain does to help us just in case we ever encounter this situation again. Right. Right. The hippocampus is taking all these notes after your amygdala, which is its roommate, is, you know, basically sending this alarm like, you know, fire, fire, fire. And then the hippocampus sends that to long term memory storage in the prefrontal cortex just in case. Right. And the problem with that is that now, as one of my patients called it, they're stringers. It's like now you've got this unconditioned stimulus of, you know, in my case for this event, bullets, right? Bullets being getting shot at. And then now you've got all these things attached to it that right. normally wouldn't be attached to it. Like right. for me, one of the things that just stood out was turf, right? <laughs> Michelle, I mean, I have to laugh about it because I have thought about turf more in the past like few years than I ever thought about it for 50, right? I mean, it like, I just turned 50. (laughs) Then I ever Uh thought about it for any other point in my life. Like who the fuck thinks about turf as much as, you know, but it was because we were standing on turf and blood was on turf and people were dying on turf, at least for the front portion where I was. And and, like, does turf have anything to do with bullets? (laughs) (laughs) like turf didn't kill anybody. But the problem is, is that your brain is now attaching all of these many different, these these details about the day, the time, the place, 
you know, tall buildings, um, noises. And then that series of details becomes what we call the conditioned stimuli. So right. now turf reminds you of Vegas. Um, right. I'm sorry, of shooting. Of shooting. Um, Vegas yeah. reminds you of shooting. Um, Jason Aldean, poor guy, reminds you of shooting. Country music, cowboy boots, Sunday, 10 p.m. It all reminds you of this lion. And then for every stimulus, there is a response. So this unconditioned stimulus has an unconditioned response. But now you have all these conditioned, that means learned uh, stimuli attached to the lion. And then they will also elicit a response always called now a conditioned or learned response. And that, that set of responses, that's our isolation, avoidance, drinking, sleep problems, uh, anxiety, depression, anger. That's that last consequence of these conditioned stimuli is why we go see a doctor. That's actually what makes people sick. So if you look at it, you see an arrow from the unconditioned stimulus to the unconditioned response, but there is no arrow from the unconditioned stimulus to the conditioned response. That's too remote. It's actually this set of details which end up becoming our narrative, our trauma story, right? We turn this into a story. I can't go to Vegas. It's dangerous. I can't be in crowds. I can't wear my cowboy boots. I'll fall apart. I can't listen to Jason Aldean. I'll lose my shit. I can't, you know, be around, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that, when I draw that out and people visibly, physically see it, and then I'll have them insert whatever their trauma was, rape, domestic violence, childhood abuse, um, you know, uh, natural disaster, near-death accident, um, combat. I'll have them insert that into that formula, that classical conditioning model, so that they can see exactly how their PTSD developed. And then when I say, so how do we fix this? How do we fix this? Then they say, we have to fix the, and sometimes they have to figure it out, right? Well, we're trying to improve the, uh, the conditioned response because that's what that's our sickness. But how, where did it come from? Well, the arrow comes straight from all those details. The, all the, the unrelated, but reminding us of trauma details. And so when we call it discrimination, when we're able to sort of cut ties between the actual lion and the things that remind us of, of a lion, right? And, and it's really important to, to have that ability to discriminate between real danger or perceived danger. And the problem is your brain doesn't know the difference, right? It's going to set off that fight, flight, freeze response in order to save your life, regardless of whether you're sitting in your living room thinking about combat or you're actually in combat. But in one case, it's adaptive. In the other case, it's not adaptive, right? It's not really helpful if we're having these fight, flight, freeze responses, walking down the canned green bean aisle at the grocery store or driving to our house from picking the kids up from school or, you know, these everyday types of things. 
Exactly. Oh, that was a, a wonderful um, explanation. It's, I was just transported into grad school and thinking about Pavlov and conditioning. So um, I wanted to reference a few things that I think can really help uh, listeners who want to get more information in a structured way. You actually talk about this um, in your videos uh, in your web- on your website, route91therapy.com. So for anyone listening, I think, and you'd like more information, I think this is a really good resource because you do describe it with the whiteboard, giving a lot of clarity, Um, you know, going to your website, route91therapy.com, you can see this in in the way that you describe it. And again, the conditioning piece is so significant. Um, And I wanted to bring something up here too, because a lot of times people can feel very helpless with this process, feeling like, okay, now this is what's coming up, these consistent reminders, the hypervigilance, all of these symptoms of PTSD and trauma-like responses, whether it is the full diagnosis or trauma symptoms, and it feels debilitating. But I want to share with people who are listening, you, we have a wonderful blessing in disguise in our brain, and it's called neurogenesis. And it's neurosynaptic conditioning, meaning that we have the ability to create new ways of thinking. It takes work because we've developed all of these thoughts, all of these ways of responding and these reactions um, pretty much from our baseline, from when we're children all the way up. And it can be difficult to create new ways to look at the world, new ways to deal with trauma, but it does happen. And that's where therapy really can be effective. A lot of people, I think, have this stigma of therapy of sitting on the couch and just talking about feelings. Yes, that's part of it. And that's necessary. You know, what are feelings? What does this mean? You know, defining it, understanding it. But then there's the reality of walking away with skills. And one thing that you referenced that I think is so great, you you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy work, thoughts, which create feelings, which create behaviors, right? That this is important that we all understand how our brain works and that we can change the way we think and therefore change the way we feel, change the way we respond to things, and that it's you're not stuck. And I really want that to be a strong takeaway for people who feel traumatized and that there is a freeze response, and that's actually very healthy. I often tell people, think about the wolf that's chasing the bunny rabbit, and the bunny rabbit's got nowhere to go. Well, it's going to fake its death, and you know it might not be interested of playing with the wolf might be full and want to play with the bunny, but it's not going to do anything if it thinks the bunny's dead. It's going to walk away. So your freeze response is actually a very effective coping mechanism when we have no alternative. If we can't run, we can't flee, we can't fight. Um, I also want to make one more distinction. Trauma narrative memory differences. So there is a difference between traumatic memory and narrative memory. Narrative memories, we're walking in the store, grabbing something, you know, we got to go shopping real quick, going to grab something and leave. Well, I don't remember every detail of going into the store. I just know I did it. I know what happened. I know that it generally happened, but it's not sharp. It's not clear. It's not, you know, something that I'm going to hold on to. Whereas trauma memory is very different. It is sharp. It is crisp. The smell, the sounds, the associations that you were describing is very powerful and that that is hard to let go. So with time and again, with our own new conditioning, our own ability to create new neural pathways, we're able to heal amongst other things, right? Amongst other skills. I wanted to, uh, before I jump any further, any thoughts on anything I just said? Because I I actually wanted to segue into your theory. 
Absolutely. I mean, I keep it simple with them and I explain, look, you know, we need to change our stories. At the end of your life, all you have is stories. And whether they're true or not is irrelevant. They're your stories. And whatever you tell yourself is going to be your truth. You know, those sharp memories, that's the ARC protein that we have to thank, right? That probably sends that into permanent memory. But what I explained to them is we won't ever necessarily be able to eliminate triggers, but we want to change their trigger reactions. And so, you know, when I see turf, do I still think about Vegas? (laughs) I do. I have this moment where I'm like, oh, Route 91. But then it doesn't, I don't have any physiological response to that. And I don't have any distress. I don't have that pit in your stomach feeling um, that I did initially because there has been this new conditioning, this new learning, right? Um, So, you know, uh, I also try to explain to them, you know, like you said about neurogenesis, uh, we do know now we can grow new brain cells. And I explained to them, look, basically why therapy and meds both work. Meds are chemicals trying to change chemical imbalances, right? But guess what? What is a thought? A thought is just an, an electrical impulse going down a neuronal ner- network and releasing chemicals. So we can, that's why we see almost a twofold improvement when we put pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy together. And it's, it's a really good bang for the buck. So, you know, when, when we start to do this work, what I kind of the late term I say is, look, we want to choke out those pathways because we know by, you know, really interesting cognitive neuroscience research, when you hook up somebody's brain, you know, EEG, you, if we say, look at, look at these pictures, flowers, babies, you know, happy stuff, one part of the brain lights up, we show them war, you know, just horrible traumatic types of pictures, another part of the brain. So basically, if we can do attention retraining and refocus in on the more adaptive, balanced, um, logical, rational, and compassionate thoughts, then we literally are forging new electrical path, new neurochemical and electrical pathways in our brain. And the other ones will just, just fall away. We went, we're choking them out. And so, you know, it kind of gives people this visual image too, that's very helpful. So I love that you brought that up, Michelle, because this is, this is great. I'm so glad I met you. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And I'm really, really touched that you took the time to, to take a look at that, that resource because of it's course. all free resources for people. And I mean, sure. Is there a lot of stuff on the web? Yes. There's too much stuff on the web and it's hard to sift through that. So, you know, I, that's why, you know, the book was just to keep it simple. And the goal of the book was maybe you'll go get help now, right? Because the problem is once you develop PTSD, you, you really do need professional help to get unstuck because after a few months, you start to have some of these neurochemical changes. And really it is, you know, even though I'm the hugs doc and I'm always going to sort of fall back on therapy, there are circumstances, especially when suicidality is involved, that we just have to be on meds and in therapy and pull out the big guns. Like, why would we make it harder than it has to be? Right. Right. 
Exactly. And you know, that leads me to my next question, because one of the things that I enjoyed most, and and it was my pleasure, by the way, I really enjoyed reading your book, I actually couldn't put it down. And one of the things that for me, I found as a clinician, I was actually laughing and also so intrigued by the way that you came up with your theory of the five bucket rules. And I, I'm excited for you to talk about this because, you know, and I'm going to share with the audience, you know, profanity is in these theories and, and in these rules. And I, I kind of love it. Um, you know, but I gave you a reason, right? I gave you a scientific yeah, reason. And I'm going to have you share that. I'm going to have you share that. Um, but for, for those listeners, there is a purpose here. Um, but I, would you mind talking a little bit about the five bucket rules and how this applies to people with trauma, but also in general, other things like setting boundaries, or, you know, different, different facets that where it might be helpful. Absolutely. Thank you for that. You know, and it's not, you know, everything we do is reinventing the wheel, right? And really, this was just something that I had to do for my patients, you know, in doing this work for about two decades now, um, you just start to realize it's very hard to remember and focus, of course, probably because of that you know, shrinkage of those parts of the brain that are helping us focus and remember things. But um, just keeping things simple. And there were things that were coming up over and over and over again in my groups and in my therapy with people who have chronic anxiety and depression and trauma is, of course, uh, you know, combination of both of those and a few extra things. Um, and uh, somehow they just eventually, I don't know, evolved probably in the past 10 years maybe, or a little bit more, 10, 15 years into what I call the the bucket rules. And, you know, in recent years, people are like, that should be a sixth bucket rule. I'm like, no, 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 we're going to keep it to five because this is already a lot of things for you to remember. And it encapsulates a lot, but you're right. They are about boundaries, but these are all really just common things that go awry when we do have anxiety and when we do have depression uh, over a longer haul. So the bucket rules and just the disclaimer, which I just thought was really, um, I don't know, I thought it was really fun, fun fact that, first of all, profanity is processed in a different part of the brain. Interesting, right? The more, the more emotionally driven limbic system versus the sort of upper prefrontal cortex up here, right? It's more kind of the emotional brain. And it's not all bad, apparently. They've, they, there's a lot of research on this that it can be cathartic. People in certain situations might even have better performance if they're cursing while they're doing it. Um, certainly, we don't need to curse maybe at the Thanksgiving table with in-laws and grandma and grandpa. But you know, if you're like in the gym and you're picking up something super heavy, maybe that'll help you. Um, in any case, I think the reason that I just let it all hang out and, and, you know, of course, I work with a military population, but, I, you know, and a young pop population is of really leading by example and demonstrating authenticity. I also want my patients to always feel like they can be authentic and they can just let it all hang out because, you know, nobody comes in and says, Dr. G, I am very enraged about what happened and this person is not a very nice person. Right. I mean, they don't come in and say that they come in and say that fucking asshole. I can't believe he's such an asshole. And I'm, you know, and, and then they go on and on. <laughs> and I want you to not be distracted by trying to filter and impression manage. Uh, I'd rather just get to the point And now let's talk about it. And now let's talk about your definition of asshole, because maybe what you're really saying is this, this person is unhealthy. 
But anyway, that's another kind of um, that's another discussion. But for the bucket rules, um, yeah, we kept it. And also having kind of a shit theme, as it turns out, makes it easy to remember. Right. I mean, my real at the end of the day, my philosophy is that tools are not useful if you can't access them. And this toolbox for people who are struggling with these kinds of issues, like day in and day out, um, it's really important to have this toolbox like right next to them. And for these things to just be, you know, rote memory at some point. So the first bucket rule is me being an asshole because I'm kind of like, you have anxiety, don't have anxiety, right? But I do that because I want to operationalize what anxiety is. You know, anxiety is the most commonly diagnosed uh, disorder in this country. I mean, not surprisingly, because we're hardwired as animals for fear. Fear is adaptive and it helps us survive. Um, so one in three people have a diagnosed anxiety disorder. But I mean, Michelle, like how many people do you know have never been to the doctor and definitely have a clinically significant level of anxiety? I'm thinking like over half the population has a diagnosable anxiety issue. Um, but neither here nor there. Really, it's not about labels. It's about the the human experience of distress and the human experience of anxiety. And then if you have anxiety, it's inevitable you'll have some depression over time. So rule number one is you don't get to worry about shit that hasn't happened yet. Right. I mean, it's pretty common sense. Right. This isn't like rocket science. Um, but we have to use that as rule number one. because, like, what well, time out. Right. There's so much catastrophizing and jumping to conclusions and mind reading and, you know, overestimating the likelihood of negative outcomes and underestimating our ability to cope. These are all these common anxiety uh, thought processes, errors of thought. So the rule is, if it hasn't happened yet, don't pay a debt you don't owe yet, right? We'll cross that bridge when we get there. Um, I say that so often, my people my patients are like, fuck that bridge, right? Because it's just, it's, it, you know, we just, why, why get all, and, you know, I always tell them, look, remember that thing you were upset about the other day? You had like 10 backup plans for the backup plan, and then none of them happened. Something totally unexpected and different happened that you didn't prepare for. <laughs> remember that? Let's just remember that. So number one, you don't get to worry about shit that hasn't happened yet. Rule number two is, you don't get to worry about shit that's out of your control. And that really begs this question, like what's, okay, what's out of my control? Everything, everything, everything except you, right? Um, and that means everything, everybody's thoughts, feelings, their behaviors, what the economy is going to do, what the president's going to do, what COVID's going to do. I mean, everything's out of control and out of your control. There are too many moving parts, right? So then that naturally leads us to this, not coincidentally, central rule, right? Number three, right in the middle here, which is handle your own shit. And what is your shit? Well, we all have a bucket. And on this, in this bucket, which is, is there's a nice boundary on the edge of our bucket. And inside of our bucket lives the three things that we have control over the three things we've ever had control over, the three things we will ever have control over. And those are our thought processes, our feelings, and our behaviors. And the funny thing is, Michelle, like most of us, uh, well, most people, I should say, because I don't, because I try to follow my rules. 
But most people spend a majority of their time worried about other people's evaluation. How are they judging me? What do they think about me? I mean, what they wear, what they do, who they date, everything that they do is dictated. Think about social media, right? It's all dictated by what other people think about me. Um, and then, you know, we worry if somebody feels a certain way, we, we personalize it. Oh, I must have done something. We are so arrogant. We think everything's about us, right? What, why are they talking to me like that? Who are they? Asshole, right? It's not about you. It's not about you. We're all just a squirrel trying to get a nut. It's not about you, right? Um, so this, this rule of handle your own shit, handle your thoughts, your feelings, because your thoughts will dictate how you feel and your thoughts and feelings will dictate how you behave, the choices you make. And if we really took all that energy and we focused in on our story instead, and we really controlled and managed the story and we told stories that served us well, like who fucking cares if it's true or not, at least tell a story that makes you feel good. Right. And I'm not saying we have to be Pollyanna, but let's at least have a story that I always tell my patients, if you compare upward, you have to compare downward. If you fortune tell in a negative direction, here's the new rule. You got to fortune tell in the positive direction. So they get in the habit of doing this, right? So rule number three is handle your own shit. And if it's not in your bucket, fuck it. And I always have to tell them because then they're, they'll come into group and they're like, I was using rule number three, fuck him fuck her. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. It was fuck it. The it is not a person, an entity. The it is the worrying part, right? Prepare, do what you got to do. Drop the worry because the worry is the part that's making you sick. And then rule number four and five, um, you know, rule number four, you are familiar with all of our wonderful forefathers and Albert Ellis first coined these terms, shooting and masturbating, which I love him so much. Um, he developed the rational emotive um, behavioral therapy and, and really came up with the ABC model. So uh, he's one of the originator of the cognitive behavioral um, theory. And he taught us about categorical imperatives. And so this, this shoulding, you know, I should, they should, I shouldn't have, they shouldn't have. It creates anger. And then masturbating is must, need tos, have tos. They create anxiety. So, you know, they create a sense of urgency or, or defensiveness. The minute somebody says you have to, you're like, fuck you. I'm not going to do it, right? I mean, people just have this reaction. Shooting makes us feel guilty or it makes us feel angry. So um, what I offer my patients is, first of all, no shooting and no masturbating. But you can wish, want, hope and would like as much as you want as till the cows come home. You could do as much of that as you want. I wish. And that even means for the more serious things. Like instead of he shouldn't have raped me, I shouldn't have trusted him. Well, no shit, Sherlock. Right. But I wish he hadn't raped me. I wish I had known. I, I hope I can trust people in the future. When you do that, you peel away that angry layer. And then what you're left with is the raw kind of scarier emotions, the sadness, the fear, but then the hurt, right? And we can process that, you know, anger is seductive. Sure, we want to grab a hold of it, beat the shit out of someone with it or ourselves, but it's not productive. So um, that's a really helpful rule. And as soon as I teach people that, they come back and they're like, oh my God, everybody's shooting. I said, yeah, there's a lot of angry people in the world, right? 
this is our shit bucket. So this is, um, and then the last um, rule is, is really important because this is really based on this idea that emotions are fleeting, right? Our emotions don't stick around because they're temporary and they're based on our thoughts and our thoughts are like the ticker tape on this New York stock exchange kind of like rolling by one after the other. And, you know, so letting a thought that dictates this temporary emotion be the reason we do or do not do something is, it's just not a great bang for the buck. Right. And um, I think just two decades of seeing people who are depressed and trying to get them moving and going to the gym and they come back week after week, Dr. G, I didn't exercise. You're going to be mad at me. I didn't feel like it. I'm like, fuck feelings, fuck feelings. Do it anyway. I am giving you permission to go do this miserable thing that you don't want to feel like shit doing it, hated every minute of it, the, of it and still do it anyway. Because imagine if you go exercise and don't feel better, just imagine how much worse you would feel if you didn't go exercise. Right. I mean, maybe you won't feel better, but at least you won't feel worse. <laughs> right. Because exercising, you release endorphins, dopamine, norepinephrine, right. It impacts serotonin. So, you know, these are, these are these rules. The first couple of them are about locus of control. Just reminding people like, here's this boundary. It's the difference between you and me. And actually when you learn to just refocus on yourself, it's not selfish. I mean, not any more than humans and homo sapiens are self-absorbed, self-directed, self-focused animals, but it is self-preserving. And when we can do that and tune everything else out, boy, you're light as a feather. You're like, oh shit, all I have to do is just take care of myself. Yes, that's all you have to do, but really take care of yourself because you're all up in everybody else's buckets and you're not in yours. So, you know, once people can work on this and it's just nice having a visual for it. So I actually um, have this beautiful handmade bucket that one of my patients made me and carved on the bottom is Dr. G's bucket bucket. And on the inside is this is water, which comes from David Foster Wallace's um, commencement speech in 2005 uh, for Kenyon College, where he talked about that story about fish and water, water being our thoughts, feelings and everything that's around us, in us all day long that we're not aware of. And so we don't think of it in a way as I can change this. But if we don't start paying attention and living more mindfully and having that awareness of water, right, which can be life sustaining or life uh, life threatening, then we can die. Right. That's how dire this is. So uh, those are the bucket rules. And mm -hmm. uh, maybe one of them will stick for some of our listeners. <laughs> I love these. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed the most about them was the simplicity and directness of it. And you're right, how mindful, being mindful of these things, being uh, authentic to them and, and really noticing ourselves in this process. Where, where am I? And, and that you're not alone. You know, for anyone listening, this is very commonplace. Most of us have these feelings, these thoughts, these behaviors, and that we just need the skills, the tools to work through them. And I really love your theory because I think it simplifies it and makes it very effective for people to take it a piece at a time. 
So I just want to say thank you so much. Um, our our time is is coming up here. Uh, I enjoyed our talk so much. I feel like we could talk so much more. And I so want much to- <laughs> stuff. So much nerding out to be done still, Michelle. <laughs> you, I'm with you, Shiva. I'm all about nerding out. So boy, you're you're singing my tune. Um, I often tell my uh, clients too that that's definitely something they're going to hear from me is a, a lot of the science talk, and that that's I hope it's helpful because at the end of the day, it normalizes that you know, we're human and that we are not born with this set of knowledge that we are just now in this last century, even the last 50 years, last 30 years, understanding the brain in a way that we never have before. And that makes it easier for us to engage with each other, learn ourselves and learn how to cope with with tough things, much like what you shared today and what you've been through yourself in your personal journey. So I just want to thank you. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure speaking with you. I look forward to uh, collaborating. Absolutely. And hopefully we can have you back on to, to keep talking about wonderful topics as we go along. And um, I did reference your website. I want to reference it again. It's route91therapy.com. Um, so for anybody who wants to watch your videos or to get more information, um, please feel free to uh, take a look at um, Dr. Guide's uh, wonderful information on her website. So thanks again for being here. I'm also going to um, be releasing a podcast um, in September. Oh, great. Talking about all these different things so people can kind of be on the lookout. It, it's called The Happy Wizard. The Happy Wizard. Wonderful. I'll make a note of that for myself. <laughs> the wizard is uh, the term that the military uh, uses for shrinks. Oh, that's great. And I do not have that background, but um, I appreciate any uh, lessons that I can get as well there. So thank you so much. Um, really appreciate it. Same. So nice to meet you. Thank you for everything. So nice to meet you. And thank you for your hard work. It's been an honor and I look forward to the next time. Take care. Take care. The information and advice offered is not intended to treat or diagnose and is not meant to replace any other professional consultation. If you'd like to know more about the San Diego Psychological Association, go to our website at sdpsych.org. That's S-D-P-S-Y-C-H dot org. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, take care of yourself and be well.